right, great, good to see all of you here, as well as those of you who are, are online on this 4th of July weekend. Um, you can pray for us, because some people on our staff, you may have picked it up, love Picklemall more than Jesus. <laughs> I think. I don't know. Anyways, um, because understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. For those of you who are here, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you if you don't have one. We are going to be in Acts 2, and then we're going to turn to Acts chapter 4, and then we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians, and those texts will not be on the screen, so keep your Bibles ready uh, for all of that. So we are in the sixth week of our series on justice. It's a story of God series, and it's the last week, and I always hate when I get to the last week of a series. I kind of grieve. Um, it feels like I'm just getting going on about the last week, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been uh, a fun series to, to work on, one like maybe no other where I feel like I'm building a bridge as I'm crossing it, <laughs> and, and it feels precarious at times, uh, but it has been a wonderful um, experience. So uh, we're going to pray, and then we're going to uh, jump into the sermon and into our text for today, so please join me in prayer. This prayer of illumination is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Heavenly Father, you are a good, gracious, and generous God. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, and to equip us for your work. As we look to your word, open our hearts and our minds. Give us understanding. Reveal your truth. Teach us to reflect your goodness and your grace to the world around us and make us more and more like you. Father, as we celebrate the birth of our nation this weekend, we have so much to be thankful for, just the fact that we can gather in freedom to worship, to pray publicly. Uh, we thank you so much. Also, um, we ask you to help us to continue to seek the highest aspirations for our country, those that align with the values, that those would be your values, that those would be fulfilled. And we thank you and pray for our nation and its leaders. Help us to do our part to bring your justice and righteousness into all parts of our communities. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in 2020, so just last year, Christianity Today, every year they do a book of the year, and the book of the year last year, I've talked about this before, was Esau McCulley's book. He's a professor at Wheaton College, New Testament professor, and the book is called Reading While Black, uh, African-American African Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. He calls uh, this book a love letter to the black church. And he explains in the book, and in a recent interview, the quotes I'm going to give you are from a recent interview, that when he went uh, to the university, it was State University, he found a really interesting dynamic that he hadn't encountered before in his life, as often the case when we graduate from high school and we go to a different place. Um, he said a lot of the professors, he was, he was a religion major, and he says a lot of the professors that he was taking classes on religion from were saying that the Bible was a book that oppresses black people. And they were saying, really, if you want liberation and you want freedom, you want to get away, as far away from the Bible as you can. And in the interview, he said, I, I thought, hold on. I grew up in the black church hearing that the Bible is a tool for black freedom and that God cared about the bad things that happened to black people. Then 
Wallen University, in order to get some support for his beliefs, he started, uh, he became involved in a Christian campus ministry. And he said that was a whole new experience because it was his first time uh, to be in a Christian, evangelical, primarily, predominantly white space. And he said what he encountered there was a lot of people telling him that the black church's theology wasn't very good, and a lot of people telling him that if he really cared about the Bible, he really shouldn't care so much about social issues. He should just focus on personal salvation. So he found himself at the university very alienated. He couldn't buy into either perspective. He believed the Bible is the Word of God, and he believed the Bible spoke to social issues. So now he works in a predominantly white space, white evangelical space at Wheaton College, and he says sometimes it's a challenge, but he's going to stay there as long as he feels he can be effective, and he feels he's being effective. I think he's being very effective. But here's what he said about his studies at that university. He said this in the interview. He said, these liberal professors were making a case that the Bible is against you as a black person, but I came to the conclusion that if the professors were right, then I would be conceding that the racists were right all along about the Bible. If you told me that the Bible is racist and that it supports what happened to black people, that means that the racists were better interpreters and readers of the Bible than my ancestors. My ancestors came to faith and looked at that same Bible that used to justify slavery and oppression, that was used to justify slavery and oppression, and said, I see a different God here. When I grew up in Alabama, my pastor said that the God of the racists is a false God. So McCulley went on to get his PhD in New Testament at St. Andrews in England, went on to be ordained in the Anglican Church, um, and, and he is a New Testament professor now, and he adds this uh, in the interview. He said this, one of the things that you do all the time as a writer or as a scholar is to try to find yourself. You have these moments of real intellectual struggle. He said, I found myself when I said that I trust my pastor more than I trust my professor. I tell you the story because, as I said in week one, um, there's a lot of confusion on the subject of justice within the church today. Uh, it seems that a lot of believers that I know don't seem to know that the Bible talks about justice a lot. That it is a, a huge subject in the Bible. Um, also, that a lot of believers don't know what the Bible says about justice. And, and so it creates a, a difficult situation because on the one hand, uh, people who don't, who like care about justice but then wind up because the church doesn't talk about it because they don't read the Bible, they wind up buying into theories that take them away from the biblical view of justice and righteousness. And they end up someplace far away, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes far away from God. On the other hand, a lot of Christians who are Bible-believing Christians, Bible-loving Christians, wind up not doing anything, not caring about, not talking about, not encouraging one another to pursue issues of justice. And it's become so polarized, especially in the last year, that anybody who talks about justice from a biblical perspective, just simply looking at what the Bible says, find themselves being accused, by, on the one hand, by some people who say, you're bringing woke ideas into the church, and by another group of people saying you're not woke enough, 
because you haven't bought into the full, you know, kind of theories that are, that are out there because you believe, you know, you're just teaching what the Bible says. We live, I hope you all realize this, let's call it for what it is, we live in crazy times. Crazy times. So today, we're looking at the last two scenes of the Bible. In our story of God course, we divide the Bible into eight scenes. We're looking at the last two scenes, the scenes that we call spirit and new creation. And um, these, it's, it begins in Acts, in the book of Acts, and runs all the way to Revelation, through Revelation to the end of the Bible. And we're still living in that scene called spirit, that we call spirit. We're still living in the same age and time as the people who were living in the book of Acts, as the people who received the letters from the apostles that we, you know, that constitute a, a major part of the New Testament. We're living in that scene. But much of the Bible's, and, and this is something that's just basic biblical interpretation, much of the Bible, or what it says about justice, is written, uh, on the one hand, to the people of Israel into a nation that has been constituted by God. And so you, you have to remember that as you're reading. It's written to the nation of Israel. Jesus, in the four Gospels, he's speaking at a time very different from ours as well. He's speaking to religious leaders in Israel. And he keeps challenging them to do the things that the Bible says to do that are about restorative justice. We're not living in Jesus' time of occupied Israel with the temple during Roman times. And remember, most of the Gospels are the story of Jesus before his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so that is a different age. It's a different time. There's, it speaks to us in you know, voluminous ways. We always have to remember that we're in a little bit of a different time now, post-resurrection, cross, and ascension. So how now, now, should we approach restorative justice? Now, I just want to remind you, especially if you're brand new with us, nine out of ten times in the Old Testament when justice is spoken of, it's spoken of in terms of restorative justice versus retributive justice. So restorative justice is about, uh, about uh, reconciling humanity to God and to each other. It's about restoring or protecting people made in the image of God. It's about God's plan to bring shalom, the way things are supposed to be. All right, it's about all those things. That's restorative justice, nine out of ten times. Retributive justice is about punishment for injustice. So how should we approach it? Basically, basically we carry the same mandate that is given, uh, found in all areas of the Bible. And, uh, and so, kind of, the first point kind of covers everything. We are going to look at three different ways, but the first point covers everything. We are called to pursue restorative justice for the oppressed and the vulnerable. We're still called to do that. It is a consistent message from Acts all the way through Revelation. That's a message that comes from Acts, the letters of Paul, Peter, James, John. We face... Um, as we're reading them, we face a similar phenomenon that we found in the Gospels. I talked about it last week. I'm not going to go back over it. But we don't find the word justice, but we find all the concerns that you see in the Old Testament. We find them there 
in Acts all the way through Revelation. Now, in Jesus, it's pretty easy to see those concerns in his teaching. Uh, still, a lot of us miss it. It's like, it's like we, well, we miss it because a lot of times we just want to read certain portions of the epistles and kind of ignore really what Jesus said and say, well, that was, you know, for there or whatever. All right, so sometimes we miss that. It's in Acts, the Apostle Paul, Peter, James, and John as well. But here we miss it almost completely. And so, so I want to give you some examples of restorative justice from the rest of the New Testament. And uh, these are just examples. This is just a sampling. These are examples that, as I was writing the sermon, came readily to mind. All right? So there's a lot more than what just kind of came to my mind. And as soon as I was done writing it, I'm like, oh, yeah. And, and I just knew there wasn't enough time. All right? So I want to take you to Acts chapter 2. And think about Acts chapter 2, what's happening in Acts chapter 2. The church is born in Acts chapter 2. There's this group of Jews that have come to Jerusalem. And they're from all over the world, from all the nations. And they are there to celebrate Pentecost, one of the feasts of Israel. And so, um, you know, Probably some of them are making their once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem at this time. But they come from all over the place. And there's an incident at the beginning of Acts 2 that gets their attention. And the Apostle Peter preaches to them. 3,000 people, it says, repent and believe. And they get baptized. And they become followers of Jesus and the first church is formed. Okay, who are these people? Listen to how Acts describes these people. Look at verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. All right. Um, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now we're going to skip to number 9, verse 9, because here you have who these people are. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews, really important, and converts to Judaism, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, that's the crowd. Do you see what's being represented there? The way that this is crafted, the fact that Luke, the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has taken the time to talk about all the nations being there and then to show us that there is a variety of nations. It's not all Jewish people who have dispersed out from the Middle East. It includes Africans and includes Asians. I mean, it's giving this picture. It's converts as well, okay? So it's not just Jews that dispersed during the exiles and, and the, you know, all the stuff that happens in the Old Testament. These are people, many people, of different races, of different ethnicities, and it goes out of his way. And the fact that it's crafted in this way suggests it takes you back, as the Bible constantly does. It's like a hyperlink, it's like when you see something like this, oh, it's because you go all the way back. What, it, what was the promise 
to Abraham. I'm going to make you a blessing so that you will bless all the nations. In Genesis 18, this is how you will bless the nations. You will bring justice and righteousness. You will practice justice and righteousness. That's how you're going to bless all the nations. So we see here restorative justice taking place. It's the nations, the restoration of peoples under God. Now turn to Acts chapter 4. There's a couple summaries in the book of Acts of what the church was like. This is the second summary. But I want you to hear it, and I want you to think back. Okay, so I think Pastor Jonathan did the third sermon in the series, and I think he, he probably covered this passage. I can't remember right now if he did. But there's a passage in the Old Testament, a restorative, restorative justice passage, where God is giving the law to the people of Israel. And when he gives the law to the people of Israel, he says, there will be no poor people among you. <laughs> All right? And Israel had poor people because they didn't do what he said to do, okay? But he said, if you follow this, basically saying, if you follow this, the law that I'm giving you, there will be no poor people among you. Now listen to how, again, under the, listen to the hyperlink here in this passage. All believers, verse 32, chapter 4, verse 32. All believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now we're going to hear what that looked like in just a moment. It says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as they had need. All right. What God is saying in this description, and it's descriptive of what's actually happening in that church, what he's saying is those promises are being fulfilled. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises. This is, this is shalom. This is the way that it's supposed to be. There were no needy people in Eden before sin. This is the way that it's supposed to be. Restorative justice is about the flourishing of all humanity because all humanity has been made in the image of God. Now, you don't go much farther in Acts. We're not going to turn to it, but if you go to chapter 6, you get a whole story about injustice. So right at the outset of chapter 6, what's happening is they are taking the words seriously of the prophets in the Old Testament. They are making sure they take care of the widows. But you have this church where that has been formed that has people um, from Jerusalem and then all these Jews from all these different places around the world. Many stayed to be a part of that church. And they come to the apostles and they say an injustice is being done. The people who are serving the food are favoring the Jerusalem widows over the rest of us. And the apostles appoint six men to oversee the distribution of food and in doing that they appoint six men from outside of Jerusalem to right this wrong and so you have right within the community itself when something an injustice happening you have them dealing with that and bringing restorative justice so um, 
We're going to turn to, don't turn to it. Well, I'll have it up here on the screen. You can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 11 and be ready for that. But the Apostle Paul, after, you know, he is this Pharisee, he's working for some authorities, and he's going from place to place and arresting Christians, because all the early Christians were Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah. He's arresting them. He's taking them away. He becomes a follower of Jesus. His whole life gets turned upside down. After many years, he goes to Jerusalem to see the apostles, in a sense, to get their stamp of approval for his mission and what he's doing. And he recalls it in his letter to, the, to Galatia, in Galatians, and this is what he says. He says, James, that's James, the brother of Jesus, Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, and John, the apostle John, those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, meaning they're gonna, their ministry is going to continue to focus there in Jerusalem. And they asked, and, and all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I have been eager to do all along. It's there in plain sight, just carrying the concerns that are so prevalent in the prophets and in the laws of Israel. Now, for the dealings with the Corinthians, okay, the Corinthian church planted by Paul, Paul stays there for, you know, a year and a half, two and a half years, something like that, and he leaves, and then he gets word, gets a letter from some Corinthians, and he also gets a report, and they say, things are bad in this church, really bad. And one of the things that's really bad is the Lord's Supper. So the first half of the letter, or more than the first half of the letter, is dealing with things he's heard. And he deals with one problem after another, and then he starts answering their questions. That's how, that's, that's how it's structured, 1 Corinthians. So here he's dealing with what he's heard happens at the Lord's Supper. Okay, so verse 17, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, he says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Okay, so... What's going to happen is, is what they're doing is they're coming together for the Lord's Supper, and they don't do it like we do it. They do it like is described in Acts. They come together for a meal, and as part of the meal, they celebrate the Lord's Supper. All right, so it's a communal meal, church gathering together, or the various house churches, and, and, when they, and then they stop and they remember the Lord's body and the Lord's uh, blood. All right, so they do that as part of that. So um, pick up in verse 20. So then, he's going to describe what's going on there that's a problem. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. It, it, they're doing the Lord's Supper, but he says, what you're doing does not constitute the Lord's Supper. So what, what are they doing? For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Now, for some reason, this whole passage is like out of people's minds. As, as I've talked to people over the years, hopefully I've taught on this before, hopefully we don't. Um, still have the same misunderstanding, but just about every Christian I've ever talked to about 1 Corinthians 11 literally misunderstands what's going on. It's, it's like, this is not rocket science. 
It's a simple stop and read, ask yourself some questions, what's going on here? And it does take a little bit of reconstruction, but it's not that difficult. And there's really only one answer to what's going on here. So what's, what's going on here? They're coming together for a meal, right? People are bringing food. As part of the meal, they're going to stop and have the Lord's Supper. Some people are going ahead and eating the meals that they brought. Other people are getting there later, and there's no food. And those people aren't bringing food. Why are they not bringing food? They don't have it. They have very little. They're, they have nothing. That's, that's what's described there. The people who are coming later have nothing. Who are these people? Well, we know it doesn't take very much. You can just look all around the world. We know that most people, to make a subsistence living in the world, need to work from sunup to sundown six days a week. That's your typical person. We know in this church, we know from reading it, there are slaves in this church. We know there are people that don't have the leisure to show up early for this meal. They have obligations, and they have very little, and they're coming, and they're going hungry. They are the people in verse 22, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? They're humiliating the poor people in the congregation. We also know that there are rich people in this congregation. Just read the end of Romans, and you find out about some of those rich people. You read the end of 1 Corinthians, you find out about some of those rich people. So they're showing up later, and they're going hungry. So when he says, don't you have homes where you can do this? He's not saying, you know, some people think, well, that's why we do it as part of the church service, and we don't do communal meals, because that's a mess. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, eat something before you come and then wait for the communal meal. That's what he's saying, very plainly. It's just don't, he's not throwing out the communal meal. He's saying, don't go ahead and eat ahead of everyone else. Verse 27. Okay, so then he talks about what the Lord's Supper is about, okay? In verses 23 through 26, he recalls what Jesus said and all that. And then we pick up in 27 because he picks back up on what the problem is there, and he says, so then whatever... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of our Lord. What's the unworthy manner? I mean, Christians come up with some of the craziest theories, theories that would like eliminate all of us from being able to take communion. The unworthy manner is what they're doing. They are going ahead and eating and they're disrespecting the poor. It's very simple. That is the unworthy manner. He hasn't changed subjects. There's no reason to think that he has changed subjects. Verse 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Okay, what is the body of Christ? Now, there's a legitimate you know, disagreement here. But do you understand, if, you understand, if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know what comes in chapter 12. And I'll remind you, in case you don't remember off the top of your head, it is the longest discussion of the church as the body of Christ. Like, it is a long discussion of the church as the body of Christ. It has many parts. Spiritual gifts are like a body. You don't you know, you, you respect each part of the body, all of that. All right, so when he says body of Christ here, and they are disrespecting, not discerning, this is the body of Christ gathered together here, and we are 
disrespecting some of us. It probably means that. It almost surely means that. But he says, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you, okay, no, we're not even prepared to hear what he's about to say. I mean, we don't even have a theological category for this, most of us, all right? But he says, listen, if you don't practice, this is what he's saying, restorative justice. If you don't treat the poor with the dignity that they deserve, you will experience and you are experiencing God's retributive justice. And so he says, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, again, listen to the theology here, we are being disciplined, disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Better to be disciplined by God than to experience the wrath of his judgment, the final judgment. That's what he's saying. That's how important restorative justice is in the New Testament. We take it and we read the Bible as if it was a book of principles, and all we're doing is looking for principles. And we take it out of its context, even though God has given us the exact context for our instruction. And we take it out of the context and we make principles that sometimes aren't that bad. Some of the things that we grew up with, being told about communion and all that, not bad. You can find other passages in Scripture that say exactly what we have taught, but it's not what this passage is talking about. And because we don't talk about what this passage is talking about, we, we oftentimes go around going, well, the Bible is just concerned with our salvation, not with social justice issues, <laughs> because we haven't read the Bible the way it's supposed to be read, the way God has given it to us. So, um, turn to James now, way to the right. It's after the big book of Hebrews, so that's best I can tell you, or go to the table of contents. It's not an easy book to find. I've got my marker in there, so it makes it a little easier. Um, but I'm going to read you some passages from James. Again, most of us don't have categories in our theology to actually hear what he's saying and to sit with it and contemplate what he's saying. It's, it's disturbing, all right? So if you haven't read James for a while or never have read it, listen to some of the things he says. Look at chapter 1, James 1, beginning in verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. Now, by the way, this, this passage, I didn't talk about this last night, I'll, I'll just tell you right now, that's a clue as to what he's talking about when he's talking about the rich. But he is talking about literal rich, but he's not talking about all the rich, okay? So I'm going to soften it a little bit for you, but please hear what it says, all right? For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall, falls, and its beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. All right, uh, the very end of chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. 
we got the second part of that message, I think, in the church, somehow we missed the first part. That's two out of the quartet of the vulnerable that come up over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible. The orphan, the widow, the poor, the immigrant. Those are the four, the quartet of the vulnerable. Why does God spend so much time? Because they can't oftentimes speak up for themselves or be heard. It's not because there's, God favors them, but because God cares about them and wants justice for them. The very next chapter, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at the floor at my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? All right, it goes on. Um, James chapter 5, this is, this is the worst of them all. This one again, you, you'll say, I have no words. <laughs> Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. If I had just read that passage at the beginning of this series, I think we would have lost all kinds of people. <laughs> and especially if I didn't tell you it was the Bible. <laughs> and say, that, that sounds... That sounds like, you know, a lot of the theories that are out there right now, that sounds like, that sounds just horrible. But in the story of Scripture, it makes sense as you understand the whole story of Scripture. And it's really easy. I can, I can, I 100% believe, I think I can demonstrate it in, in so many different ways that rich people can be followers of Jesus and are, can be good with God, okay? There's no doubt about it in Scripture. No doubt about it. But can we sit with what's being said in there about injustices towards workers, about the rich, meaning almost, I mean, this makes it sound like the vast majority of us sitting here today will not make it. And can we sit with it for just a little while and hear God's heart for justice and his heart against injustice? The whole Bible is concerned with matters of social justice. But so many people just seem to, seem to ignore it. And, I mean, it's an epidemic in the church. 
And so uh, a short while back, uh, there was a, an article written in a British uh, magazine of the Anglican Church, uh, and uh, it was decrying certain theories, woke theories, critical theory, Marxist theories, all this kind of stuff being brought into the church. It was decrying that. And so N.T. Wright, who you guys hear me quote a lot of times, a New Testament scholar, he's a great New Testament scholar, he was also the former bishop of Durham in the Anglican Church, responded in a letter to the editor who had written the article. And I'm not going to read all of it to you, but I want to read some highlights, and I'll put a couple of them, a couple of them are in your outline as well. It says, Sir Douglas Murray, the writer of the article, complains that the Church of England has embraced the new religion of anti-racism, the theory anti-racism, okay? But the truth, which neither he nor the church seems to have realized, is that the anti-racist agenda is a secular attempt to plug a long-standing gap in Western Christianity. So he goes on to say this, the answer is to recover the full message, not to bolt, British term, not quite sure what it means, not to bolt on new ideologies. The earliest Christian writings insist in the Messiah, that in the Messiah, there is neither Jew nor Greek. The book of Revelation envisions Jesus' followers as an uncountable family from every nation, tribe, people, and language. At the climax of his greatest letter, St. Paul urges Christians to welcome one another across social and ethnic barriers, insisting that the church will thereby function as an advanced sign of God's coming renewal of all creation. He writes this, if it has taken modern secular movements to jolt the church into recognizing a long-standing problem, shame on us. But the answer is not to capitulate to the current ideology, uh, identity agenda and then to enforce it with breast-beating, finger-wagging neo-moralism. The answer is teaching and practicing the whole biblical gospel. So I just want to be a little frank with you as we come to the end of this series. I really don't understand how some Bible-believing, Bible-committed believers can possibly say, we should just stick to the message of salvation and let go of social concerns. I don't, I literally don't understand it. I read all kinds of articles. They all try to explain it and I don't buy most of their explanations or, yeah, there's some truth in that. There's some, I just don't understand it. This last year personally has been very disorienting to me as I hear what's being said by Christians across America. I'm like, I, over and over again, I, I thought we were past most of this stuff. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. I, finally, one explanation was it's kind of like there's been a return within evangelical Christianity to a kind of a fundamentalist, push out anything of the world, the world has nothing good in it. I don't know why it's gone in that direction, but it's certainly not what we've been teaching and other churches have been teaching. I, as I hear people talk about it, I, I haven't known where to begin to counter some of the things they say. I don't even, and I guess this series is my attempt. So I started at the beginning with Genesis and kind of worked my way through. 
Um, but the ideas that are floating around within our churches are so off the mark in so many diverse and terrible directions that I just don't even know what to do with it. And I really don't understand how my brothers and sisters who love the Bible can be so disconnected from what the Bible says about justice. It doesn't make sense to me. And the series is hopefully an attempt to kind of moor us again to what the Bible says, not what the culture says. On the left or the right, but what the Bible says. All right, two quick points to kind of pull this together. Uh, number two, live in light of God's end time restoration of all things. If we had time, we would look at Revelation 7 9, and, uh, where it talks about this throng of people from all peoples, tribes, and nations worshiping God. But we're to live in light of that. Uh, living in light of the end, when Christ is going to come and he's going to make things right and bring shalom, does not mean just go like, oh, I know life is terrible now, but heaven's coming. It's part of it. It's life is terrible now. A new creation is coming. And I have a mission to live that out now. I have a mission to live that out now. So the vision of the book of Revelation where a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial throng worships God is a picture of what we should be living out now whenever possible. And the human flourishing depicted in the closing chapters of Revelation should be what we are seeking now. Is it going to come in perfection? No. Are we, are we going to know exactly what to do? No. God knows. But we're to be living with God as our king his rule working its way through us. That is the whole message of Jesus. That's the same message the Apostle Paul preaches. Number three, seek unity in pursuing justice without demanding uniformity. Again, if we had time, we'd look at Ephesians where it talks about these two groups within the church and the coming together and how important that is to God. But I want to tell you a story that illustrates this. I just I heard this a few weeks ago, and it, it, it is an incredible story. It illustrates what, I'm, what I've been trying to say since the beginning of the series, which is we won't always agree, and it's okay. We won't always agree what constitutes injustice. We won't always agree how to fight injustice, and it's okay. It's okay, all right? So the story is about a pastor during Nazi Germany, in Nazi Germany. There came a point in Nazism where you had to, if you heard, if you could hear the national anthem, you were to stand wherever you were restaurant, wherever. You were to stand and do the Heil Hitler and wait for the song to end. And this one pastor wouldn't do it. And so he was arrested for it. And he was sent to a concentration camp. And they tried to make him do it. And they tried to make him do it. And they would beat him for not doing it. And they would beat him until they beat him to death. One year later. Oh, by the way, there's one detail in this story that is not true. All right. I'll tell you what it is. But it doesn't really have anything to do with the import of the story. All right. A year later, uh, a pastor, a young pastor, comes and preaches in the church of the deceased pastor. The wife of that pastor still goes to that church. This young preacher gives a beautiful sermon, wonderful sermon from the scripture. After, after the service, the uh, leaders of the church are going to go up. They're, they're taking the young pastor out to dinner. They invite the wife of the deceased pastor along. They're having a wonderful time at a local pub. And on the radio, playing in the background, comes the national anthem. And the young pastor stands up, 
and Heil Hitler's until the song ends. So here you have a pastor, Heil Hitlering. There you have the wife of a man who stood for what is right and died for it, sitting at the table. Who would that pastor be? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Do you know his story? Days, weeks before the end of World War II, he was hung for participating in a plot to kill Hitler. And he was opposed to, from Hitler, to Hitler from day one. He was asked by one of his friends, why do you stand and how Hitler during the national anthem? That doesn't make any sense. And he basically explained, uh, I'm picking my fights. I want to live long enough to be able to end Hitler's reign. It was a tactic. It was a strategy. Completely different from this other Christian who went to, death, to his death. Now, the detail of the story is that lunch never happened. Okay? But that's what would have happened because that's exactly what Bonhoeffer did. Two men, both concerned about justice, but going about it in a completely different way. One of our members was talking to me after the service a few weeks ago and telling me about a friend who was going to go down to uh, the George Floyd um, Square, take some medical supplies to the encampment there. And she said, she, she said, I, I said to, to my friend, I said, I, I'm not going, I'm white, I don't, I don't think it's safe down there for me, but I want to help, I'll give you some food. And uh, she gave some, some supplies to take down there. And so in our conversation, I said, well, I really can't disagree more <laughs> with what's happening in that encampment, I really can't. I think it's an injustice to the people who live and work and own businesses down there. And I said, you're right about the danger. There's bullets flying everywhere there. It's a dangerous place for anybody to go there. Uh, I didn't say this. I'll say it now. I wouldn't contribute anything to that group of people that would cause them to stay there longer. <laughs> but I did say this. I respect the people who are there in their cause. I disagree with their strategy. I disagree with their tactics pretty strongly, enough to say it in the sermon, but I respect them. I also, I'm not certain that my strategy is right. I'm not certain that they're completely wrong. I'm not, I'm not certain of that. I am certain of this. Getting to justice in the name of Jesus will always take a variety of approaches. Some I'm going to like. Some I'm going to literally despise in such strong disagreement. But I also recognize this. If people did only the things that I like and agree with, quite honestly, probably nothing would get done. This is really hard to do. Let, let, me, let me add one other thing. I think you can have a heated discussion about subjects like this. A heated discussion. As long as it doesn't cross into name-calling, demeaning, and all those kinds of I think you can have a heated discussion about these things as a Christian. I know it's hard 
for all you Swedes, Germans, and Norwegians to have heated discussions. In my culture, you can have a heated discussion about what goes into a rock and pollo, all right? You can, you can have heated discussions about those things and walk away, love each other and kiss each other and everything's fine. Bible is not against heated discussions, it's against demeaning people, putting them down, that sort of thing. It's so hard to do this to stay united when disagreeing on strategy and tactics, even disagreeing sometimes on what constitutes an injustice. But it's all part of the package when we do the great requirement. Let's remember what it is. The great requirement. Can I get the next slide up there? Do I have it? Yeah. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Three things. Three, three parts of the great requirement. Which is either missing or on life support in your life. It's hard, but we can do this. And the reason that we can do this is not because of our own strength, but because of Jesus and what he's made possible. While we were still sinners, while we were the unjust, and he cared about justice, he went to the cross. His body was broken for us. Let's eat together. His blood was shed for us. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your great love towards us. We thank you for you showing us the way of loving even people who oppose us and who hate us and might even persecute us. You died, and you call us to live sacrificial lives as well. You called us to be a people of justice, not protecting just our rights, but the rights of humanity around us. Help us to do the, our part in that. Help us to be united, that our churches would be united, moving forward in what are your concerns. Able to disagree and still move forward in how it needs to be taken care of and showing respect to one another, not demeaning each other. Help us to be those kind of people. It's Father, right now I just think it's, it's actually kind of simple, but it's so hard. We need you and we need your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.